From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Mark, I have to say, during weeks like these, I do wish we were back in the office so I could enjoy the comforts of a cold office. It kills me to have had to turn off my box fan. I'm just letting you know that right now. But, you know, we're taking a brief hiatus from the podcast. You know, listeners will be back in no time. But what are you going to do with all this extra time off? Extra time? (laughs) I mean, I think the plan is to plan. So we're going to we're going to we're taking a break from actually putting out shows. But we're going to be back in the labs concocting and coming up with some schemes and working on what we're going to come back with. And then also, you know, we do have our regular yes. jobs and work and other things to to do around the around the, you know, the ranch. Yeah, I was just worried that you were going to try to stop zooming with me every week. Are you still going to zoom with me? I'm ha- I'm happy to. We can, I mean, this way it's a little more flexible cuz we don't have to have our producers on the call. We could do yes. it. You know, more on our schedule. Exactly. Maybe we could work in, you know, some TV viewing or film viewing. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Like, we could do one of those virtual watch parties. Now, have you, like, watched things with people? Yes. Over, like, over Zoom and stuff? I really haven't done that. Yes. It takes me back to, like, middle school when you would, like, be on the phone with the person and watch at the same time. It feels a little bit like that. And it can be a little irritating, like, depending on the friend you have, if they're a talker. I don't like to talk during my viewings, Mark. I'm not someone that says, let's pause and talk about this. I like to hold the talking for after. How are you? I Yeah, I don't talk during shows or when I'm watching things, really, because I, you know, it's a, I'm trying not to use the word sacred, but it's like, it's a very, like, you know, serious thing to me. And so I just, I don't, I, I like to respect the object and, like, give the thing I'm watching my real attention and not be, like, popping in and out. <laughs> So we'll do we'll do well together in this yeah. way. Well, something I want to give my full attention to this week is your interview. Tell us who you're talking with today. I'm talking with Janixa Bravo, director and co-writer of the new film Zola. I originally saw it uh, actually ahead of Sundance 2020, then then at the festival where it first premiered. And so this is a movie that's kind of been like percolating for a while now. I would describe the movie as a dark comedy about uh, two women who become fast friends and things do not turn out as expected. That's the short answer. The longer answer is a black woman is seduced by a white woman and is lured into this road trip that is meant to be uh, profitable and exciting and thrilling. And she finds out she's actually being sold into sex slavery. And it, the film is her journey getting out of that to make it back home. And to think, all this started from a Twitter thread that began, okay, listen up. That's right. It was 148 tweets written by Asia Zola King. She was a waitress and dancer. She was living in Detroit at the time. And, you know, it went viral. It really was very popular. And there was kind of a bidding war over, you know, who was going to get to make a movie about it. As Janixa talks about in our interview, she had to work really hard to get this job to even make the movie that she she co-wrote with 
Jeremy O'Harris. And in the movie, the two main characters, Zola and the other woman, Stephanie, are played by Taylor Page and Riley Keough in just a pair of just really phenomenal performances. Well, I can't wait to hear more about this film and how it came about. Mark's conversation with Janixa is coming up after this quick break. Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's Mark's conversation with Janixa Bravo, director and co-writer of the new film, Zola. Well, hello. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Now, Janixa, I feel like I've been waiting like a year and a half to have this conversation with you from when I first saw the movie at Sundance in January of 2020. It still feels as provocative, outrageous, as energetic, as frankly, a little bit dangerous as it did then. And I'm wondering for you in the waiting for the movie to come out and with all that's happened in the almost year and a half since then, are you surprised that sort of like the energy of the movie is the same? Yes and no. I think that the content or the the work itself feels very alive and very young, and it has a kind of of the moment quality. That's not to say that I think in five or 10 years that it wouldn't feel as electric as it does right now, but it is a film born out of the internet. It is literally born out of the internet. It is, uh, you know, our source material is a Twitter thread, and there is an audience out there that has been dying for this movie. It's been five years in the making, six years in the making. Uh, The story was written on Twitter in the fall of 2015. And, you know, 2020, I think for a lot of people really felt like it was going to be their year. And there was something really exciting about five years after this story came out, getting to, you know, 2020 just looks like a good number, right? Like there was something really exciting about finally being able to have this moment. And the film, I would say one of our top notes is agency and freedom of expression. And so I think one of the reasons it might feel so great for right now is that the film, the world of the film is pretty radical, right? The women in the movie are radical. That a Twitter story was turned into a film is radical. There is like so much expression and none of that expression is asking for permission. And I think that all of that just feels, it's bubbling, right? It's ready to explode. And I feel after a year plus indoors, all I want is to breathe. And I imagine a lot of us out there want that. And now before you came to the project, there was another director, there was another script that was attached. And as I understand it, you worked really hard to get this job. (laughs) And I want to know why. What was important about this story to you? And why did it really matter that you be the director for this movie? I read the story initially the the day after it came out on Twitter. Maybe I read it within hours. I think it was the end of that day. As I was wrapping up, I was on a group thread with a few girlfriends, a few Black girlfriends. They had sent it and they'd been interacting with it as it was coming out. And that night I was in bed and I was halfway through it, three quarters of the way through it. And this sounds maybe kind of goofy, but I 
just knew, oh, I'm supposed to direct this. I'm going to make it. I should direct it. There weren't a ton of thoughts that went into it. It just was like, you're directing this. This is your next movie. And so we have to go on the road to get there. I wanted to go after it because what I was reading or, or what really got me, there were so many things that happened. One, it's super funny. And I think that Whenever I've described the movie to people as a, you know, dark comedy, two women go on a road trip, but uh, a make money stripping, and then one's kind of sold into sex slavery and she has to get out of it, but it's really funny. Most people don't see how that's funny. If it were a not funny movie about sex work and sex trafficking, I don't think that I would be the right director for it. But the storyteller, Asia King, who wrote this story, had imbued it with so much humor, so much dark fucking humor is like woven through all of it. Like you're laughing at some of the most disturbed moments, right? You know, there is a woman who 20 men are paying to have sex with and then she has a joke in there and it doesn't really make any sense, but it just is. And so I found myself feeling like this is exactly how I would tell this. Her way of exorcising her trauma, her way of processing trauma, I feel... It feels so familiar to me. I feel so close to it. This is how I move through the world. And I think the thing that kind of pulled me to it was I want to protect this story. I want to protect the thing that she told. And I'm ready to be on that ride. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. And I think I'm the best director for that because I don't mind how long things take. I'm comfortable with how long they take. I'm comfortable with how crunchy they can be. I'm comfortable with how painful and emotional and depressing and long. I just was like, oh, I've been here. I mean, you know, you and I met after I had made my first film. It took me five years to get there. And my assumption was, well, I'm hoping this one doesn't take five years, but like I'm ready for that road. And it's got a lot of highs and it's got a lot of low, low lows, but like I can do it. You know, I learned so much from that experience and mostly that I had and more tenacity than I knew. And so I thought I can do this. I can protect this woman. I know this story is really special and I've got, I got the guts to do it. But when you say protect her story, what do you mean by that? What do you, what are you protecting? I think there is a version of this story that has a little less care and attention to detail. There is a real tightrope that happens and like I said, it is also about sex slavery. It is also about sex work. There is plenty of work around these spaces that can be a little bit dark, a little bit distant, a little bit, I don't know what, archaeological. Like we're painting a picture of these people who live on the other side, right? You know, sometimes the filmmaking can feel a bit like how the other half lives. And and also because her story is super fun, it is a real ride. I think there is also a version of this piece that isn't engaging with the the seriousness and the weight of what she is also talking about. And I felt my own relationship to my own work and how I was weaving humor and stress and anxiety and discomfort really could apply here. And I wanted to make sure that, yes, we could make a movie that was fun. Yes, we could make a movie that felt like a fucking party, but that also we were talking about something. And that the women whose lives we were adding dimension to, that we were giving them dignity. Your co-writer on the, the adaptation of the Twitter thread and also the Rolling Stone piece that, that sort of came out of it is Jeremy O'Harris, who 
Tony-nominated playwright for Slave Play. How did the two of you come together, and what was kind of your process like in working on the on the screenplay? Around the beginning of 2017, I found out that Zola was available. It had moved through the hands of its last director, and so I went on this three-month audition process of trying to get it. And one of the things that I was pitching was that I really wanted to bring on a co-writer. I really wanted to bring on a young co-writer. I'm not on Twitter. I don't spend as much... Well, then I didn't spend as much time on my phone. After the last year, I think I'm part phone. But before that, I wasn't spending that much time on my phone. And there is a kind of language that Asia introduces you to that isn't a vocabulary that I necessarily jam out in, though it's one that I take great pleasure in. And so I needed a young person who talked like the thing, who was able to kind of like introduce me to the vocabulary, give me the legend, give me the map, and then I could really be inside of it. So I had a list of a few writers that I wanted to work with. I was randomly at a dinner with my partner at the time, Brett Gelman and Jeremy O'Harris. And we were the three of us kind of listing writers that I could be working with. And I said, oh, you know, I wish I could just work with you. And Jeremy, you know, echoed the same thing. And Brett just went, well, why can't you? And I thought, well, because Jeremy's going to college and I can't bring a student to be my co-writer uh, of this movie that I'm making potentially with a studio. This is also before A24 is on board officially. So I'm like, this is my second movie. I can't be like, and my friend, I'm going to write it with him. He's going to college. Also, I thought, you know, we got to write it before he goes to school because there'll be a demanding schedule. And Brett, being Brett, and I think literally just because he moves through the world very differently, just thought, well, why not? If that's what you want, why don't you just ask for it? And both Jeremy and I being Black and moving through the world a little differently, we were like, I just don't know that they're going to go for it. And we then just did. I just said, oh, I want to work with Jeremy. At the time, um, he had one one play that we showed them, uh, which was Daddy. And they met him and they fell in love with him. And, you know, he hadn't written Slave Play yet. And actually, he's now in school and we're working on the draft. And I was like, you have to finish your homework before you can take the next step on the draft. Like, I'm going to be doing a pass on it until then. And his homework was writing the first draft of Slave Play. So I am responsible, actually, for why Slave Play exists. I feel um, a lot of people should be thanking me for that. Uh, You know, once he was officially brought on, we came to the table with, here are all the things we love that maybe are not a part of the world, but that we want to add to this. We each kind of had a list of three to five things that we wanted to put in this outside, you know, social commentary of sorts. But first and foremost, I did an interview with Asia King, who wrote the Twitter thread. I wanted her to basically walk me through the thread, but more like a story and less like 148 tweets. And so I had her retell it to me, recorded that, took notes. And then one of the things was, you know, for example, there's just like one thread that the road trip from Detroit to Florida is 19 hours. And there's just like one tweet that's like, we're on the road or, you know, we made it to Florida. And I was like, there's 19 hours. What happens in those 19 hours? So kind of used her to fill in some of those big gaps. And And then we really relied on the source material. Our homework was when the audience goes back to the theater, when they go back, when they go to the theater to see this, 
I'm thinking of when I fall in love with a story and it gets adapted into a film, you always have this like, well, well, why didn't they do that? Or why did they take this out? And so I felt really married to the text and really wanted to include as much of it as possible. You know, I really, if we were going to lose something, I wanted us to be really clear on why we were losing it. And we really kept almost everything in, actually. We did some reshaping, but we kept a lot of it in. And one of the things I find so fascinating about you writing this with Jeremy in particular is that with slave play, and it's interesting to note the chronology of how the works came to be, but with slave play, it feels like part of the work itself is designed to explore how Black audiences and white audiences are going to respond differently to the work. And is that something that you really wanted to also be a part of Zola? Absolutely. I mean, I actively considered it when working on the adaptation, but whether or not I was active in how I approached it, it was already there, right? The story is so much about race. It is a Black woman's telling a story about how her and a white woman fall out. So whether or not you want it to be about race, it just is. Uh, because these two individuals move through the world differently, they're looked at differently, they're cared for differently. And you're actually speaking to, when I first read it in 2015, I had done a little dramaturgical research and the handful of articles I came across all did a couple of things that really stuck with me, which were, one, when Asia wrote the story, she was 19. And a lot of the pieces either removed her age or made her older, 22, 24, 25. And I think there was this conscious or unconscious move to adultify her so as to strip her of whatever it is we imbue to young people, right? Like whatever we decide, the, the gentility that we would inherently give to a young person or a girl if you make her 22, 23, 24, 26, then she doesn't, she doesn't deserve that. She doesn't deserve our care. The other thing I noticed that was pretty much in every piece that was written was the validity of her story. Not so much the events, but the validity of it. And I thought it's possible that a lot of this isn't true, but these events are pretty bleak. I'm not sure why we're not talking about that. And here's an opportunity for us to talk about forgotten girls lost girls, you know, and and rather than that be where the discourse went, it went to whether or not her story was true. And so I felt like that meant that a Black audience was going to show up to this a little different and a white audience would also show up to this a little bit different. And also, you know, age range, all of that. Like there was just, for every person, there was going to be this individual experience of how they met these two women and the thing that happens to them and between them. One of my favorite moments in the movie happens while they're on that drive that you said you sort of had to fill in. Zola and... Stephanie, the characters played by Taylor Page and Riley Keough, they go to the bathroom together and you put the camera above them in the two stalls and the camera just sort of glides back and forth between them. And it's not even with a lot of dialogue, but we learn a lot about the two of them and their behavior just from kind of how they go to the bathroom. <laughs> and I'm so fascinated by that as a moment and like how you sort of came to conceive of that because it's such a brilliant piece of visual storytelling. There's some nice performance pieces there, but it's really not a dialogue thing. It's not something that came from 
the tweets? Like, where does a moment like that come from? So that was, I, I think I said just a hair, a hair ago, what are the three things that you're bringing to this that you really want to be in the movie? And that, that was the number one for me. I really wanted this scene on bathroom behavior. And I was remembering my first time away from home was when I went to college. And one of my first memories of, of being out with my girlfriends, most of them white, was, you know, getting drunk off of Long Island iced teas and going to a bathroom in a bar and both being in the same stall and, and me going to the bathroom the way my mother taught me how to use a public bathroom, which was, you know, to hang my bottom above, you know, above the seat and not actually sit, uh, really rely on my knees and my thighs and wipe and wipe the seat after me. And, and many of my girlfriends sat on the toilet and I had never, I'd never seen that before. I mean, I'd also never been alone in a bathroom with someone that I didn't know or someone that wasn't my family. And so it seemed so foreign to me because my mother had ingrained to me that that wasn't okay. <laughs> and, uh, for a multitude of reasons, probably germs, disease, things like that. And so it was so wild to me that there was this ease with which, you know, some of my girlfriends moved through the world. And I thought, I just, once I had the movie, I was like, oh, I have to tell the story. It's so much about me, but it's about how I related to my white girlfriends, how like we were together. And if I were to distill one scene from the film and be asked, you know, what do you think is the movie? That would be the scene that I would extract. So it's funny to me that you picked it because I, I, it says so much about who they are and how they move through the world, you know? Indeed. And, and now Taylor Page's performance as Zola, she exists in this very chaotic world, but her performance and the character feels so centered, so still in the middle of all that. Can you talk a bit about that aspect of the character that she's so self-contained and she's like, none of this throws her? I feel the piece is in a lot of ways a classic comedy. And that is to say there is a straight man and a clown and Taylor is the straight man where Riley is the clown or the buffoon. And... So there's a good deal of comedy in playing the straight man also, but the straight man also sometimes is kind of the narrator, right? Or you look to the straight man and you know where you are if there's a sense of feeling lost. And, you know, the only person whose life story I had of the four main characters was Zola's, Taylor's, Asia. That was the only person who I had a 360-degree view of and access to. And again, to go back to those articles that adultified her or questioned the validity of her story, I felt like this character had to be so centered to tell this story. I also think how she tells it on Twitter it is mirroring how she tells it on Twitter. The insanity is all right next to her and she's just on the side. She's very much a narrator. Or, you know, she has, they're kind of these Shakespearean asides, right? Like it's a character just to the left of all of the action or just to the right of all of the action. And so we approached her performance, even how she's framed in camera oftentimes is just off to the side of all of the busyness. Tell me a little bit about casting Riley Keough, because I, I can only imagine that that's, that was a difficult role to cast. It was, but she was the first on my list. And, you know, we met, we met other actors. 
Uh, we did our due diligence of meeting other actors. And every time I met another actor, I was like, I just want to offer it to Riley. I just do. I just do. I don't know. I just feel like she has it. I was just talking to her a couple of days ago, actually. And she asked why I thought she could do it. And I had said, I think the last performance of hers I'd seen before thinking of her for the movie, I think was her performance in American Honey, which I find to be deeply chilling. Um, and I think in general, there is something about her approach to work. She can be really terrifying to me and distressing in the way that she embodies. It feels so natural that it's actually scary. I just thought she could. And the, I would say the maybe the fear around casting her actually because she had played this part in American Honey was, well, are those two the same women? And, you know, culturally, they were not the same woman to me though they might exist uh, in the same economic stratosphere. I just felt it. It kind of like I knew the movie was mine. I just felt it. I mean, it was not dissimilar to casting Taylor. I'd seen Taylor in an ad on television and told my casting director, we got to find this woman. I don't know who she is and tried to describe Taylor to her. And she had no idea who I was talking about because I didn't have enough words to explain who Taylor was. And and then I happened to be in Larchmont in Los Angeles and she walked into this coffee shop and I was like, oh my God, that's the girl. That's the girl. I, that's the one. And I took a picture of her and sent it to the casting director and was like, this is who I mean. And there was so much of relying on what my gut was saying to me. And that's kind of how we got to both of them. And then with Riley's character in particular, I've read Riley talk about how the two of you had a lot of conversations about the element of cultural appropriation around the character. And can you describe for me a little bit of what those conversations were were like? That character is just so wild. I've never seen anyone quite like that, maybe in the world, but definitely not in a film before. And so I'm just wondering what you kind of make of her. So this question feels not unrelated to what you're asking about Taylor playing the straight man, right? So Riley is the buffoon. Mm -hmm. I felt like... I needed to, not having had a sense of who this character was beyond what was in the Twitter thread, and the Twitter thread is very live and in the moment, so there isn't a good deal of backstory on who that woman is. But when I went back to that initial research, while we didn't have enough on that woman, she was always presented as fair, um, as reasonable. The, the critics or the writers were looking for a way in to justify the role that she played in this story. And so I felt in my approach of this character, I needed to stack the odds against her because I still feel a lot of the audience is going to arrive on her side. At the end, they're still going to be on her side. They'll find a multitude of reasons to be on her side. So basically, if you start her at a demerit, you start her at a demerit and her and Taylor are starting in the same place. Does that make sense? Exactly, yes. And, um, and so one of the things that we had this on our, our first conversation, you know, Riley walks into this restaurant. I don't even recognize her because who she is on screen is not who she is not on screen. So she like comes to the table and I look at her like she's a foreigner and it actually happens to be Riley Keough and I'm mortified and I apologize deeply that I, you know, looked at her like she was a stranger. And um, we're talking about the script and, and uh, you know, what I'm hoping it does or what I feel it does. And I just broach it by going, I have something kind of weird to ask or I have a kind of weird idea that is possibly going to make you uncomfortable. 
but I want you to trust me. And she goes, I know what you're going to ask me. And (laughs) I was like, really? She's like, yes, I know exactly what you're going to ask me. And I think I said, well, let's like kind of say it at the same time. And we do. And it is, it's the same thing. I wanted her to be a minstrel. And uh, she was like, you want me to play a stereotype? And I was like, yes. And I think that that speaks to the text that Jeremy and I wrote. I think we embedded it into the text as well. It was there. And she was totally fearless and very comfortable with doing that. I mean, there was some anxiety of, oh God, what is the audience going to say? And there is still that feeling, right? Is it going, is our intention going to land? And I hope it does, but I felt like that was the right pairing to tell the story. More of Mark's conversation with Janixa, including how the tweets became part of the musical score in Zola, coming up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Envelope. Here's the rest of Mark's conversation with Janixa Bravo, director and co-writer of the film Zola. Throughout the, the movie, there's this sound effect that occurs, this little whistle. That is like the it's like the tweet the sound of a tweet arriving. Can you talk a little bit about the way it's deployed? Like, does it come at specific moments, or like when do we hear that funny tweet whistle? In some ways, it's a part of our score, right? Like, it's not literally a part of composition, but it is part of our environmental score. And that was one of those. Here are my five ideas, you know, that I really want to put in this world and I hope that it works. And it's actually written into the script as well. The idea was when one of the lines of dialogue is verbatim a tweet, it was to homage the source material. And that whistle is meant to be, you know, we're sort of paying our respects to our leader. And and not all of them are done. We did do a pass where every single one is in there, but sometimes they're just they're at odd emotional places that it just doesn't land. But I would say 75% of the tweets have that, you know, of the tweets we used feature that moment. And we only remove them when it was getting in the way of, of a beat landing. And then can you talk as well about the actual score composed by Mika Levy, that there is something very ominous and sinister about that score. And it, doesn't always match the energy of the scenes. And I and I want to know what it was that you liked about that and why you wanted there to be this sort of like undercurrent of dread that's just building through so much of the story. The score is very much, the composition is very much Zola's gut. It's her emotional interior. It would be unfortunate if you were to walk away from the movie and go, well, that was fun. And and only that, uh, then I would really feel like I had failed. And so when we started working on the score, I, I put together a, a mix of sorts of like 10 songs uh, that walked us through a beginning, middle and end of kind of what I felt the movie felt like. And the thing both Mika and I discussed in our approach was using the score to mirror Zola's interior life to mirror Taylor's interior life that even if everything on screen had this kind of patina that felt easy or pleasant that the score would actually tell us where she was at and that 
the score, if you were to listen to the score and then look at her face, you would actually know that something was wrong, <laughs> even if what was being sold was something else. With my other films, I had wanted to do this and kind of pitched it to Mika and she was into it, which is that for the protagonist, I had liked the idea of narrowing them down to an instrument, using a sound to be their sound and to be when when they're silenced or when the world doesn't have room for their voice, that you are able to hear their sound and that their sound telegraphs something. And, and so the sound that we found for Taylor, for Zola, was a rose bowl. And so there's this rose bowl throughout the movie that has this kind of like deep hum. And, and that is meant to be her other voice. I want to be sure to ask you about both Nicholas Braun and Coleman Domingo, because as much as this movie just utterly belongs to, to Taylor and to Riley, they are no small part of kind of creating the world of it and also some of the real turns that the story takes. I think Coleman in particular navigates that those twists so, so well. Maybe with Coleman in particular, that character, you know, he presents himself one way, reveals himself to be something else. What was it that you kind of wanted from Coleman's performance there? Coleman was the second person we cast, and Taylor was the first, Coleman was the second, Nick was the third, and Riley was the last. While the four of them, in some way they are a family, right? When you see the four of them in that car, they should feel like a family. It isn't a family that necessarily makes sense, but they're a family nevertheless. And what felt so right about Coleman, we just offered the role to Coleman and I was like, is he going to say yes? Um, was I thought that he, I think I had maybe just seen him in Beale Street. Is that possible? I think I had. I think it's possible that I had. But he was able to do sinister and charming in the same beat. You could hold those hand in hand. He could be totally terrorizing and you could then find yourself totally feeling held by him. And that isn't obviously a very easy feat. I, I think he also has this, his bad guy is someone that is so wrong, but the way he plays him is so right that you want to be in on it. You know, you want to dress like him. You want to laugh like him. You really want to be shoulder to shoulder with him, even though he feels really debatable. And, you know, really all of the actors have a little bit of this already. Like once each of them was cast, I did a little bit of a rewrite to adjust to them and our meeting and some of their own patterns. But they were already bringing so much of themselves and I really trusted them implicitly, and they trusted me. And so the film is a product of us believing in each other or kind of buying what the other was selling. He was just really down to play. Coleman was really down to play. He was just like, and he would always be like, I can make it more fucked up if you want. And it was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and what was awesome is that both Taylor and Riley felt so safe with him, right? I felt safe with him. We all just felt so safe so that we were, we could push ourselves to make things a little bit darker because we felt safe together. You know, we knew at the end there would be a cut and we could all laugh about how far we'd pushed ourselves. And then you, like so many filmmakers working today, have been moving pretty easily between 
working in film and working on television. How do you find that? Like, is one feel more an expression of you than the other? Like, did are you? How are you finding kind of navigating the space, moving between making movies and making television? I know. I feel so grateful to get to have a path in the TV space. I mean, I'm grateful to it for a few reasons. One, it's become my film school or, you know, I didn't go to film school and I made a bunch of short films before I got to make Lemon and and somewhere in there I got to start a career in the TV space. So it has really kind of like furthered my education in film. It's also been an opportunity to play with tools that I haven't had access to on my movies, which are like tiny movies, you know, working on a TV show that has the budget of every single thing I've ever worked on all together and more. Um, so there's that. I've also been really lucky that most every episode I've done of TV has in some way felt like an extension of me. They have been, I, I wouldn't say they're catered to me, but they almost feel that way. You know, the work that I am being offered in that space is oftentimes, it's oftentimes the episode where like the characters leave the world or something a little bit baddie happens or something, you know, really destabilizing happens and it becomes, you know, and that that's the episode that I tend to do, some kind of um, Alice down the rabbit hole sort of episode. So I've been super lucky. I mean, also, I just need to do television to, like, support my life. I mean, to, like, pay for things like rent and food and, you know, underwear um, because working in indie film is not a life I could live off of. You know, I, I made this movie in 2018 and I got the movie in 2017 and it's 2021 and I've been working on it the whole time and not, you know, I was paid a long time ago, but you know, you're paid in other ways. So TV has really allowed me to supplement. It it just supplements my life artistically, but also financially. And it allows me the room to be able to say no to things I don't want um, because it has provided me a degree of comfort uh, that I've never had before. What you touched on, the fact that some of the television episodes that you've gotten to direct are so you and do seem to come from your sensibility so strongly, that seems really unusual in working in television. What do you make of that? Why do you think it, like, what is it about you and your sensibility? Like, what does it mean to you they come to you for the weird episode? <laughs> well, that's great. I, I, If that's the market I'm cornering, I'm really excited about that. It took a while to get here, so blessed be the fruit. It's a combination of things. I also feel like some of the television I'm working on would be considered prestige television. You know, I don't mean to be reductive to other TV that is not referred to as prestige, but it, it is in the more prestige space, which I think feels more in parallel with film. And so there has been more room for big gestures. And most of the work that I've met on the showrunners or the uh, producing directors have asked me to bring myself to the work and to not be shy about bringing myself to the work. I, I don't know that it would work everywhere, though. You know, there it doesn't that doesn't make sense everywhere. It has just happened to make sense where I am. There are a couple of episodes of television that I have done where I felt it wasn't right for me to lean too far into what my own aesthetics are because they felt a little heavy handed in the world, actually. And then just the the last thing I want to ask you is we've been having conversation with people 
everybody has been, you know, cooped up for as long as they have been and everybody's been watching a lot. I want to ask you if there's anything that you've watched, whether it's TV shows or movies that have really spoken to you that you'd want to recommend to other people. Is there anything you've seen that, that really meant something to you? Oh my gosh, it's been, it's so many months now, but what I would recommend is Veneno. I feel that was like the most exciting thing I've seen in the last six months. Uh, have you seen it? No, what is that? Veneno. It's a Spanish television show. Oh my gosh, you must watch it. It's on HBO Max. It is based on a true story. I think it's six or eight episodes. I don't want to say more because you really should see it. I think it's really the most exciting piece of TV I've seen in a long time. Like it is like up there. Oh, that's exciting. I haven't I haven't even heard of that one. Yeah, you should check it out. And it's in Spanish language, by the way. So if you haven't seen it, when if you have HBO Max, when you start it, HBO Max will automatically play it in English. I don't know why, and that is not good. So you have to be watching it right from the top so that you want to listen to it in Spanish, even if you, I mean, I speak Spanish as my first language, but you should hear it in Spanish because the rhythm, it, it's like watching an Amulovar film, right? You want the rhythm. You don't want it to be dubbed. And the dubbing doesn't necessarily match the pace at which the picture's moving. So you definitely want to hear it in Spanish. And wait, is it complicated to like figure out how to find the the Spanish language version? Because I know I've, I've had that trouble before. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> you know, I put it on months ago and then it started and I had left the room and I was, I watched 15 minutes of it dubbed and was really bummed out about it because I didn't understand why it was being presented this way. And a friend told me, no, 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 you just at the very, they, it's a question that you're asked and it's, you just, you press a knob, but it's a very, it's, it happens kind of soft and quiet. There's no energy behind it. And so if you miss it, it'll just be in English. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I feel they should trust that the audience is comfortable with hearing it in Spanish first before deciding that they want it to be dubbed. Well, it's one of those things where it's exciting that we have the opportunity to just watch this Spanish television program easily in our homes with the punch of a few buttons. But then they kind of get you with the fact that they, what they want to sell you is the English dub. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, if you watch it, you have to tell me. I want to hear what you think. I definitely will. And so the new movie is Zola. Janixa Bravo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, Mark, I was struck by what Janixa had to say about feeling deeply that she was meant to tell this story, you know, particularly because of the tone that she had to sort of balance, because I think that's what was so interesting about the thread. It was sort of the Twitter equivalent of a page turner. It hooked you and it was funny, but at the core, it's disturbing. And Janixa's understanding of what was at play and sort of feeling connected to how Zola was processing her trauma, I'm sure sort of translated into a very compelling film adaptation. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things where from the perspective of now, it's hard to think of anyone else making this movie. I mean, she's just so perfectly suited for it. And yet, you know, it really was a challenge. She wasn't the first person that a lot of people, you know, producers and people involved in the project thought about first. And so in some ways, this movie just existing and her having made it 
in and of itself, to me, already feels like such a triumph. Well, I'm excited to see it. You know, it's one of the many movies on my list this summer. Um, but, you know, I've also had time to catch up on TV. Well, I before we talk about what we've kind of been watching, I have felt kind of guilty all week that last week when we were talking about the show Hacks, you know, we were talking about Gene Smart, and we sort of really didn't talk at all about Hannah Einbinder, who, you know, plays the young Eva. It, like, gives the the show a lot of its, like, generational tension. She's playing, a, a like, a, a young bisexual comedy writer who's sort of on the outs in Hollywood with everyone she knows and takes this job in Las Vegas as kind of a last-ditch thing. And I just, I, there's something really compelling about her performance. I don't feel like we've quite seen that character before. We haven't quite seen a comedy performance like Hannah's giving. And so I, I felt bad all week that like as much as everyone is like lauding Gene Smart when they talk about hacks, like they're sort of like leaving something out of that conversation. Well, that's why this is what we're here for. Let's spread the word. <laughs> I'm sort of curious like where we see her character go in the next season. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more from her. So was there anything that you did watch this week? Well, I caught up on Top Chef, and it remains stellar as we near the end of the season. But I also, you know, speaking of Janixa, I finally had a chance to watch In Treatment on HBO Max, and she directed a couple of episodes. And I don't know if you remember the series when it first aired, like, more than a decade ago, but it starred Gabriel Byrne as a therapist, and... You know, with its return, we have Uzo Aduba, who you may know from Orange is the New Black or Mrs. America. She takes over in the therapist chair as Dr. Brooke Taylor. And it's such a great watch, Mark. I can't recommend it enough. Like, Uzo's performance is stunning. Like, she brings so much complexity and layers to the role. The Even the way she reacts as a listener is truly brilliant. And of course, like her character's wardrobe, like makes me consider dressing like a professional again, but I'm not quite there yet, but definitely watch that. Have you caught up on anything? I watched the series We Are Lady Parts, which is on the Peacock. It's written and directed by a newcomer, Nita Manzur, and it's set in London. It's about a band of four young Muslim women and their manager, also a young Muslim woman. And they formed this punk rock band. And for myself, I was a huge fan of a movie that came out a few years ago, a Swedish film called We Are the Best. That was also about like a young group of teenage girls who formed a punk rock band. The women in We Are Lady Parts are a little older than the girls in We Are the Best. But it kind of has the same energy that like through their band and their music, they're able to express a lot of their frustrations with what's going on in their lives. And the the show it's so sensitive and such a great depiction of the variety of lives being lived by young Muslims. And it really just, there's something that it's fun and funny, but there also just feels like something really special about that show. And it's six episodes. Mm -hmm. They're all under 30 minutes. So, I mean, you really, I watched it more or less in like an evening, an evening and a half. Like it's, it, it really, I thought it was a terrific show. I think I'm just still stuck on the fact that you have a Peacock subscription. I would not have guessed that. I did that because I wanted to see the Amber Ruffin show. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just pleasantly surprised. I just, you know, I would think you're... I actually, I have to confess, I've gone a little bonkers. I've, for some reason, like, I just, when there's a new subscription service, I'm always like, $5.99, $6.99, that's nothing. 
<laughs> and then like six months later and you've looked at it twice and you've paid for it I don't know how many times. So you're like, oh, well, I got to go find something to watch on that thing. Seriously. Well, you've done good, though. Have you done Saved by the Bell? <laughs> Punky Brewster? No, no. You're just staring at me blankly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are shows I didn't. Re- I mean, I. Well, okay. Saved by the Bell, I did not watch in its original incarnation. Punky Brewster, I may have watched in its original incarnation, but I don't see myself going back for the reboots. Well, I was going to say, I think I know what you can do during this time of our hiatus. I'm just saying it could be valuable time. Watch well Saved spent. by the Bell? <laughs> yes. Just, you know, for kicks. Maybe get like get high and watch Saved by the Bell. Just like on a Friday night, Mark. Like, we need to unwind. <laughs> this is a family show. We need to unwind. We work for a Come family on. publication. Come on. Anyway, but we're back in August, right? So they tell me. We're going to make it good, guys. You're going to want to come back because we're going to have a good lineup. I'm just saying. August. Remember August. Okay. With that, the Envelope the Podcast is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to all the wonderful actors, showrunners, and directors who've been a part of The Envelope, the podcast so far. And thanks to all of you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and we will see you in August. Bye, Mark. Bye, Yvonne.